Sabbath, and then the next day is the day of Pentecost. Of course, we look forward to that as a very important time in God's plan. I thought I might mention in light of last week's sermon that uh, there were some reports yesterday that there was a great deal of bombing going on in the nation of Syria, that uh, the Syrians were bombing uh, in Israel, but primarily Israel was bombing Iranian forces in Syria. They weren't, bomb- weren't after the Syrians, apparently, but the Iranians. Now, I don't know how true all those reports were that came in. I haven't seen much uh, to go along with it since, but I don't trust the mainstream media anymore. They often will not tell you what is going on, uh, so you have to get it from other sources. But uh, in analyzing that a little bit, I do believe Daniel 8 tells us that uh, having broken the horn of the Medes in Iraq, that we will very likely break the horn of the Persians or Iran, and then we will have our horn broken. Now, the United States going to war against Iran would not be necessarily a popular move uh, among even our own people, nor would it with our enemies or our allies. And I'm beginning to wonder if they're sort of doing an end around here uh, because the U.S. and Israel uh, talk to each other a great deal and are supposed to be very strong allies. And I'm wondering if they're causing Israel to set this thing off, and then we would come through and say, well, we have to protect our allies, which would draw us into it. So it might be that we could be drawn in ourselves, uh, doing it to ourselves, but using someone else as the initiator or the beginner of it. It wouldn't surprise me at all we do things like that, and it wouldn't surprise me at all that the CIA or the United States government in some way was not the one who actually uh, damaged those freighters to get this thing going. But uh, there's a lot of war rhetoric going on and a great deal, that's some of it in the mainstream media, about the president. And it says that he doesn't want to go to war, but his advisors want us to go to war. And then he said that that was fake news, that he had said that he didn't want us to go to war. So... Who knows what the truth is and what's really going on, but there's where I lean on the scriptures, which uh, seem to indicate that a war with Iran is in the offing, and it looks like it could happen very soon unless things back off. You never know. You, You get run up to things, and you run up, and it backs off, and it backs off, but one of these days it's going to keep going, and uh, who knows? This could be it. So let's keep a pretty close eye on the Middle East and reports of bombings there. I also read another article that said uh, that the Israelis plan to take some more territory back, that they want to go uh, into areas around them and take the land. They lost the Gaza Strip or part of that to Egypt in that war in 67, or what year was it, 67, I think. Uh, Now they want to gain it back. So uh, they're 
They're talking war quite a bit right now, the nation of Israel is. So we shall see. Leaving that then, let's go on to 2 Corinthians 6, where we left off the last time we were in Corinthians. Uh, the, the last two verses of chapter 5 I want to use to tie in with 6, kind of as a review. But there he tells us in verse 20 that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. So the ministry was a, an ambassador for Christ, uh, that Christ had appointed and sent to be his representatives to these people. And in a larger sense, we are all ambassadors for Christ because once we are converted, uh, we are to be a light to the world and to give a good report of the kingdom of God and others to see the light of God and the kingdom of God in us. So we are called to do that. A light set on a hill in Zion is what we are to become. Now, I realize that this is very difficult. Uh, this isn't a time when light is shining a great deal. The church has been decimated, uh, which means about 10% left. And it has not been much of a light to the world in quite some time now. And we have our self-righteousnesses, our Laodiceanism, and the things for which we were scattered to deal with. I take hope in Isaiah 54, a scripture I mention, I think, fairly often, last verse or two, where it talks about once he does draw those people out and put them together, our righteousness will be his righteousness. No longer self-righteous, but having the righteousness of Christ. And that's quite a transition for people who were Laodicean, uh, thinking well of themselves, and coming to realize that it is self-righteousness that is the problem, really, with, self, with Laodiceanism. I am rich and increased with goods. I'm doing okay. Uh, self-righteous. And that has been probably the greatest characteristic of the church, at least since some time before Herbert Armstrong died. And the reason uh, God broke it apart is it be because it had become that. We weren't a light to the world in the way that God wants us to be a light. We were a light in our own eyes in thinking we are better than the world. And truly, we are not better than the world, and in some respects, we have a lot less excuse for it than the world. They don't understand, and they cannot be uh, held to a standard that they don't even know. But we do understand, and we have a standard to live up to, and instead of being humble and meek, Toward the world, we looked upon them as lower than us, as less of less value than us. We now were on the winning team, and they were not. And somehow it got translated into a self-righteous attitude like the Pharisees, who thought they were okay and everybody else wasn't. That was our problem. 
and it is still our problem, sad to say, to a great degree. I hope we're making some progress and that we can make that transition with the power of the Spirit of God to where it is His righteousness that the world sees when He looks at us instead of our own self-righteousness. That's what we have to work on because it is the most prominent uh, characteristic of the church today is self-righteousness, which is a false light. Uh, we have the truth, but it doesn't have the right light shed upon it. So he's saying here that the ministry was to be an ambassador for him to act in such a way that people could see Christ through them. And that was the job of the ministry. And then it became our job, too, that the world might look at us and see Christ. That's what an ambassador does. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, he became a sacrifice for our sins, but we didn't know sin before God began to help us understand the truth so that we really knew what sin was. My grandparents, my parents, I, up until I was eight or nine years old, went to the Methodist church. And they told us that uh, the law was done away with, and the law defined sin, so we had no idea what sin was. We thought it was cigarettes and booze and card playing, I guess. Uh, the Baptists and all those other Protestants have the same idea. They don't understand it's the transgression of the law. So we didn't know sin. And now we've been clued in. We know what it is. Uh, but he tells us that we should not receive the grace of God in vain. That he has given us a great gift, a great understanding and not to let it go in vain. In other words, in a way that does us no good, that accomplishes nothing, but make it worthwhile. So then he goes on in that vein. For he says, I have heard you in a time accepted, and in a day of salvation have I succored you. Now, it does say the day of salvation, but it is not specific in the Greek. And we understand that there are more than one day of salvation. Uh, there's a time at the beginning of the millennium when people will begin to be saved. Uh, the general resurrection after the millennium, where the great white throne judgment is made over billions of people, that's the day of salvation for them. But we have to understand, grasp, and live by the idea, the knowledge, that this is our accepted time. This is a day of salvation for us only. Only those who are called in this age then to be chosen to be part of the bride of Christ. So this is a day of salvation that we cannot let go by in vain. We have to do what needs to be done. Now is a day of salvation. And we see uh, throughout the New Testament especially that 
right now is the time of our judgment. So we'll either be in the first resurrection or we will not. Based on the judgment he makes in our day-to-day lives prior to the time of the last trump. So this is our chance. I know we know that, but maybe we need to be reminded of it pretty regularly. This is our chance. It's the only one we get. And we need to be sure that we don't let it pass us in vain, but make sure that it happens. So he says, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Uh, He says, if you give offense or you do things you shouldn't be doing, you think things you shouldn't, you have attitudes you shouldn't have, he says, that will reflect back on the ministry because we didn't somehow manage to teach you, instruct you, exhort you, encourage or inspire you to do what you ought to be doing. So it comes back on us, and they say, well, you know, those people aren't what they ought to be. It must be the preacher's fault. Uh, And to some degree, that can be true if we don't do our job. But there shouldn't be any offense, and therefore there shouldn't be any blame. And we know from Ezekiel 33 and other places that we answer for our own sins, Uh, So you can't blame somebody else because you aren't what you ought to be. I think we've been told through these scriptures an awful lot, and I know that I have in the last 23 years gone over many of these things to show us what we need to do and show us what we have been as Laodiceans and what we need to do about it. So... Uh, I hope it doesn't fall on my head if people don't do what they're supposed to do. We all have that responsibility. And he goes on and talks about the ministry some and the things that he and Titus and Timothy and the others were facing. He says, but in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. And he's going to show some of the things that uh, they had gone through to show that they were doing the right thing and that it didn't always bring peace and happiness. It brought a lot of trouble, tribulation, persecution, and troubles. Uh, But that's part of the job. It comes with the territory. And people who have not experienced the ministry have really no clue what the pressures are uh, and the many, many directions trouble comes at you. But he goes into it here. Uh, In all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. So he says we have to have patience to deal with the things that come on us. Uh, They were afflicted a great deal. They were without a great deal, and in all kinds of distress. Uh, Him with travel, with enemies, with uh, the powers that were, such as the Romans and the Pharisees. They were always in trouble of one kind or another. In stripes, he had been beaten, some of the other ministers had. Imprisoned, Peter was, Paul was. Uh, Some of those things may happen again. 
Uh, that's what happened in the early New Testament. I look at the good things in the Bible that happened before and say, well, this will happen again. And then you have to look at these bad things and say, hey, that may happen again. Because what is involved is difficult. And the only way we're going to escape all the things that he's talking about here is if Christ comes, dwells with us, and puts up a wall of protection for us. It's the only way we're going to escape it. And those who go into the tribulation, 90% of the church are going to go through all these things, including 90% of the ministry and 90% of the church. They'll be right in the middle of it, just as Paul and the other apostles were right in the middle of it then. You, you had the same dynamics working then that you do now. There was an exciting beginning, and then there were those who departed for one reason or another, or rebelled for one reason or another. Ananias and Sapphira, a good example. And then Paul named some of his enemies, Alexander the coppersmith, and uh, and two or three others where he had been embattled by them and called every name there is to be called, I suppose. So they had all of that as the falling away occurred in the New Testament church. And it did occur, and by about 70 years later, it was basically non-existent, just like the church is becoming today. So the apostles then went through a great deal of affliction and problems, and the end-time ministry is going to go through part of that because it will be hated of all the world, Satan and the whole world. And those who are ensconced in Zion to be a light to the world are going to be hated by the whole world. And when they take over Jerusalem, they're going to try to kill every last one of us who are there to build the temple and build Jerusalem, and you had better run for your very life to Zion, or you will be killed. He makes it very, very clear there in Matthew 24. So it isn't all smooth sledding ahead for all of us or the ministry, except and unless we are accounted worthy to escape a lot of this that has gone on and will go on. And I think you could even look at the end of Worldwide. Uh, it grew very, very rapidly for some decades, and then trouble started. There were rebellions in the ministry, rebellions among the members. Uh, the state of California was sicked on it, and Herbert Armstrong was fighting problems from every direction for quite a few years before he died. It was just part of the job, and none of us understood truly what he was going through uh, with enemies and not even knowing who his enemies were sometimes uh, who were working against him and acting like they were with him. Uh, a lot of that went on. Joe DeKotch, Stan Rader, to name a couple of notable ones, among others. So what Paul is talking about here. Uh, was true then, and it's been true today, and it isn't over with yet. So in stripes and imprisonments and tumult, tumult is just the opposite of peace, where there is no peace, and you're always battling uh, 
dissenting voices and noise uh, that disturbs the peace. So he went through a lot of that in the local churches, even, where he had enemies in this one and he had enemies in that one, and they were speaking against him. And he even dealt with the one in First Corinthians there, where some were of Apollos, some were of Paul, some were said, well, I'm just for Christ, forget the ministry, and on and on it went. So he says, none of those are the right answer. Be followers of Christ and followers of those he sent as they teach you the truth. Uh, but that isn't what they were doing. They were, they were uh, choosing sides. So that created tumult. So in labors or in work, uh, in watchings, uh, you're watching for what? Trouble. It's no fun to sit on a watch knowing you could be killed in, in the military uh, by people who are snipers or those who are trying to sneak up on you or attack in the night or whatever. And we have to keep watch continually uh, of our lives, of our spiritual condition, and of our enemies, and so on. In fastings, uh, they fasted because things didn't go well and they needed to be close to God. So he went through that, and also by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by love unfeigned. So in spite of all these terrible things, they also were able to follow the pureness of the Word of God, to keep the true knowledge of God, to guard it carefully and not let His words fall to the ground, and to be patient and long-suffering, and in spite of all that was against them, to be kind and to have love. And we have to do that. We should be praying for our enemies right now, those who are fighting against us, trying to take over that which God has given us. Uh, I'm not praying that they stay here. I'm praying that they be in the kingdom of God. I'm praying that they repent of their rebellion and their hate and their anguish and misery. And uh, I know that God has already said they're going into the tribulation. And I don't wish that on anybody. But if that's what it takes to cause people to repent, then that's what it takes. So pray that they be in the kingdom of God someday. Just not that they be in the way of building the temple and building Jerusalem. But they be taken away from that and repent under a different circumstance, but that it all be well with them. Uh, I don't hate any of them. I get frustrated with them at times, uh, but I try to keep that under control most of the time. Anyway, verse 7, By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left. He speaks of the armor of God and taking on the whole armor. And this is a little hint at that right here because it was something that uh, was on his mind apparently and he would talk about it in this book and then he would explain it more clearly in another place. So the word of truth sustains us. The power of the Holy Spirit and the armor of righteousness on 
our right hand and on our left hand. We're told not to let our right hand know what our left hand was doing. Uh, We're to be righteous on both sides and just do good. Serve and help and do good and not need credit for it or keep score on it as many people do. I do something for you. I expect you to do something for me. And that's not the way uh, Christ says to do it. We cannot keep score. If you don't let yourself know what your right hand is doing and your left hand is doing, then you will not also then be asking others uh, to acknowledge all the greatness that you do. If we brag about the good deeds we do, we lose the value and the reward for it. The Pharisees did that. They wanted everybody to know the good things they'd done and how long they'd served and how well they'd served and all the things that they'd done for everybody and all this went on and on and on. They had to brag about the service and the so-called love that they had. And Christ said, no, don't even let your own right and left hand know. Just do. And don't keep score. But sometimes I've seen it right here over the years with we had more people and so on, but I would see, acknowledge and recognize that some people just had to have pat on the back for everything they did. And uh, and you could tell by their attitude that you, be, you better well pay them back for this wonderful service they'd done to you. <laughs> and uh, no, that's, that's ungodly. It's wrong attitude. And they had, in verse 8, had gone through honor and dishonor. They'd seen both. They had been complimented and thanked for what they were doing. And then like Alexander the coppersmith uh, and so on, uh, they were given dishonor. Now, Paul did, didn't just ignore his enemies. Uh, sometimes he named them so that the people in the congregation could be aware of who the enemies were and what they might be doing uh, so that it would lessen the effect of what they were doing. So it's not wrong to call names at times about who is causing division and dissension and problems. By evil report and good report. There were good things said about the ministry, bad things said about the ministry. As deceivers... And yet true. Paul had been called one who was creating a great deceptions. But he knew the truth, and he'd heard it from Christ, and we get it from his word. And uh, I've been called a deceiver many times over various doctrines that, uh, that we have seen changed here, uh, such as Passover, uh, various ones, County of Pentecost, you name it, there's Oh, there's quite a few of them where we've had to make changes and uh, we're called deceivers. I've been called a false prophet by some. I had one accost me one time in a pharmacy in uh, Hurricane, right out there in public in the middle of the store, calling me a false prophet and a deceiver. And uh, I walked out. (laughs) 
because they were about to call security or the cops or whatever over that. But it just comes with the territory. And that was over the Passover, as I recall. So sometimes call deceivers, yet true to the Word of God is what we have to be. As unknown and yet well-known. Look at us out here. We're basically, you could say, unknown in one way because we attract very, very little attention from the rest of the church. And yet, on the other hand, we're well-known. Do you think there are many people in the church of God who haven't heard of that idiot that's out there in the middle of the desert preaching that uh, Zion and Jerusalem are here instead of over in the Middle East? They've all heard about it. So we're not known in the sense that uh, we're before them and in their consciousness, but they certainly look upon us as a crazy cult and uh, unbelievers, I'm sure. So that comes with the territory. But you know what? I have no problem with that because God said it would be this way. Uh, I can show you many scriptures to uphold that, that... This is the way it would be. So, that being the case, he tells us also what shall be. So, what we have now, a rebellion at Anatoth and people leaving and people staying here and fighting with us, God said what happened, and then he gives us several scriptures to show what will happen to those people. They go into the tribulation, they will all be killed there, Jeremiah says, every one of them, man, woman, and child. Uh become martyrs, and hopefully they repent before it happens. He says he'll purge the rebels. But then some of them come back and tell me I'm the rebel. Well, we'll see who God purges. <laughs> you know, we'll see. So what, what we have here today was fully explained and told us by God. And then the beautiful things of the gathering and so on that are going to occur will also occur when the time is right. So we have the truth, and that we stick to. So let them call you what they want. Uh, I believe with all my heart the reason I'm here and you're here. And I don't believe that there's any way to gainsay it or to disprove it because it's true, and it was written in the Bible, and this is it. Now, we do our part. God will use us to do the things that he said he is going to do and bring a lot of help to get it done. If I didn't believe that, I'd be somewhere else. But I believe it with all my heart, and therefore I am where I am, and I am staying where I am. Unless God shows me differently. I'll always throw that in. Whatever God's will is, has to be our will. And we don't always know what his will might be. But he will reveal it in time. So unknown and yet well known. As dying, and behold, we live. So as chastened and not killed. So God lets us, you, me, have sorrow, trouble, difficulties, uh, but not killed. We're still here uh, trying to grow, to learn, uh, to be what God wants us to be. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There are a lot of things to sorrow about. There are a lot of things that 
don't go right and that make us sad or sorrowful. <coughs> but we choose not to just live in sorrow, but to rejoice in the good things that God has given us. Uh, there's where stability comes. I know personally, one of the primary ways that I keep my mind and my attitude straight is to go look at the things God has made. Uh, he tells us in Romans that He is seen through the creation. And I go out and, I mean, it may not be no further away than my backyard where there's trees and grass and a flower or two and a blue sky and just marvel at the little birdies and the things that God has made. And that causes me to rejoice in the beauty of the universe and of the earth and of all that God has given us. And then that mitigates some of this other stuff that goes on because you can rise above it through the Spirit of God and by seeing the wonders of His creation. And not just my little backyard, but I like to go out on the desert. I like to go up in the mountains. Uh, I find it very inspiring to sit under a pine tree and watch a squirrel. You know, something that simple uh, can cause you to rejoice in God. So, yeah, we're sorrowful about the sin, the war, the killing, the lying, the cheating, the adultery, the murder in the world. And yet, we can rejoice in the things God has made. At the same time, we're sorrowful in praying, Thy kingdom come. As poor, yet making many rich. They didn't live like kings, but they gave the riches of the gospel, the riches of the understanding of God to people. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. All important things. So he says, this is what I go through. This is what Timothy and Titus and the others go through. Peter, James, John, all of them. John had more love than any human being during that era, and maybe ever as a human being toward God and Christ, and yet they apparently boiled him in oil. So, you know, it wasn't an easy deal. Well, from what we understand from history, the, the boiling oil didn't hurt him. Well, that's fine, but had you been there and they'd heated the pot of oil up and they were going to throw you in like the lion's den or the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that would have been you standing there and that heat would have been the pot they were about to throw you in. And that would bring you a certain amount of trepidation, fear, sorrow, uh, frustration, all kinds of emotions that were difficult to handle. So even with the love of God that John had, he went through things just like Paul and the others did. So he says in verse 11, O you Corinthians, our mouth is open to you, our heart is enlarged. Now, he had corrected them pretty heavily in 1 Corinthians, and now he's trying to get them to change one more thing, to be for, 
forgiving and loving toward a man who had been a sinner, who had repented. He covered that, and then he had good reports from the ministry that was there before he wrote this letter. And we'll see that as we go on, that uh, they had made some changes. And uh, even though he, he had to address it at the beginning of the letter and say, look, uh, you've got to be more forgiving. But then he got reports that they were. So it turned out good. So he says, oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open to you. We're willing to expend the words to talk to you to write to you. Our heart is enlarged. It's full because we see you obeying. We see you responding properly. That enlarges your heart. It makes you feel good and and full-hearted. So that's the emotion he was feeling. Then he says, you are not restricted in us. Straightened is a word we don't really use unless you talk about a straight jacket. Uh, where you're, you're not able to move. But, and that's kind of what he's saying here. We didn't put a straitjacket on you. You're not restricted in us, but you are restricted in your own bowels. Your own, the, the bowels are the seat of your emotions, of your feelings. You know, when you get bad news, sometimes people commonly say, I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. Or my my stomach just uh, gathered up and knotted up. Well, that's that's what emotion does. So he says it isn't us that's creating the problem for you. You're being restricted by your own feelings and emotions. He says, let's get this straight. We're trying to use our mouths to show you and to love you by enlarging our hearts toward you, forgiving you, helping you, and yet you're your own worst enemy. Your, your trouble and your emotions and feelings is your own. We restrict ourselves. We imagine a lot of times how somebody else feels. We don't know how they feel, but we imagine how they feel, and sometimes we think it's the worst. So it upsets our stomachs. And people often are not thinking what you think they are at all. I run into that all the time. People say, well, you did this and you did this and you were thinking this and they accuse you of something. And that wasn't what was in my mind and my heart at all. So they just simply misread because of their evil imaginations and their own negativities And they bind themselves up by what they imagine you think. And you can't read somebody else's heart or mind or sometimes even their body language correctly. Sometimes you get it all wrong and you create problems for yourself. And they did by blaming the ministry. So that's what he's trying to get across is, hey, uh, you're causing a lot of your own problems. Most of the things you worry about are things you don't even need to be worrying about. You just had faith in God. Verse 13. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children. It says, I'm, I'm the parent here. You're the children. I'm here to teach you, to chasten you, to guide you, to encourage you, 
to inspire you and so on. So he says, let's understand the relationship. Uh, be you also enlarged. He says, change your attitudes. Don't sit there with this gut-sick feeling that, well, the ministry's against me, or they hate me, or they don't like me, or whatever. Uh, we do love you, he says. Our heart is enlarged for you, and we're speaking words to encourage, inspire, and help you, and to help you change your attitudes. So, listen. <laughs> Hear it. Do it. So that you might be enlarged and your heart feel full instead of feeling dejected and not liked or unloved or whatever. Then he goes on in verse 14, part of the adjustment of our attitude uh, is involved in what he says here, because that's indeed what he's talking about, is attitude and approach. He says, "...be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers." For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? In other words, you're already fighting your attitudes. You're already having difficulties. And then you want to go out and be yoked with unbelievers? That that's your friends, your relatives? That you want to be around them and they don't know the way of God? They're not going the way of God? Here you are trying to be an ambassador for Christ and trying to have good attitudes, and then you get around people in the world, and that's where you want your fellowship to be. We're not to fellowship with the world. He says it right here. Is that where we get our fellowship? I'm going to turn back here to the book of John, 1 John, for a moment. 1 John 1. Verse 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Emmanuel the Christ. So he says, we're believers here, so your fellowship should be with us, but our greatest fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Where are you going to get the best advice, the best feelings, the best attitudes, the best approach to anything in the universe except those two. They're head and shoulders and ankles and feet above us, completely above us. And there is our source of strength, of knowledge, of understanding, of inspiration. So the time we spend should be first with the Father and Son. Verse 7, But if you walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. So our fellowship should be primarily the Father, the Son, and after that, each other. Because we are the ones who understand the truth. And if we seek fellowship outside the church, we're going against what uh, both John and Paul said here. So he says, Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That There's no fellowship there. One is in light and one is in the dark. 
That doesn't mean we shouldn't go around and never speak to anybody in the world. But that isn't where our fellowship should be. That's not where our friendships should be. They should be with each other. Your relatives can't help you. They have worldly attitudes. Your neighbors out in the world can't help you. Uh, That isn't the place to make friends. He says, it's like oil and water. They don't mix. They just don't mix. What concord has Christ with Baal or Belial or Satan? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel, an unbeliever? You, you, You have different ways of thinking, different ways of reacting, different ways of looking at Uh, the world, and the world around you. And theirs is going to be an ungodly, satanic viewpoint. That's all they have. That's all there is there. So why do you want to mix with that? Let's go back to Malachi 2 just for a moment and tie that in as well. Now I'm going here partially in the light of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll go there next, but I'll hit the Old Testament here first. Malachi 2, if I can get there. And down in verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Eternal, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. They were to be worshiping God, and yet they intermarried with people of the world. And it's not just a matter of race here, it is a matter of belief. Idolatry is not according to race. Idolatry is according to belief and practice. So God calls it an abomination to marry those who do not believe the same as we are. Now, many, many thousands of people, I guess thousands, have gone that way even once they came to a knowledge of the truth and they think God blessed it. No, He didn't. It's an abomination to Him. We managed to make it through it, perhaps, and I've known of a lot of sorrows, and some kind of get along, but you can't have the same relationship with an unbeliever that you can with a believer. It just simply can't be done. The daughter of a strange God. So that's in the Old Testament. And remember, when they had married strange wives there in Nehemiah, they had to separate from their wives and their children. That would have been a very, very tough assignment because we tend to love our kids. And to have to give those children up, uh, well, that that was, would I say, earth-shaking emotionally. But hadn't they restricted their own feelings by what they had done? They felt when they were told they had to separate from those wives and children that they'd been kicked in the stomach. But they had done it to themselves. They'd gone and sinned before God, and God said, straighten it out. 
So the stricture really was in their own emotions and bowels, as Paul is saying here in Second Corinthians 6. They had become, uh, become unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers. Now that can be on a social basis. It can be on a marriage basis. Either way, I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 7 here and read you the one about marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married, liberty to be married to whom she will, she has a choice, only in the eternal. She has a choice of church members, but she doesn't have a choice outside of church members. That's very, very clearly stated. Do not ever do it. And yet many did, and many suffered a great deal of consequence from it. And it caused trouble. So, whether it's marriage or whether it be on a social basis with unbelievers, I think that's more what he's talking about here in, in chapter 6 and verse 14. Because he's talking here about righteousness and unrighteousness between light and dark. So it's not marriage, it's here a matter of Believers of the truth and non-believers. And your fellowship is not to be there. How do you mix God and Satan? You can't do it. He goes on and says more, verse 16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what does the temple of God, which we are, spiritually speaking, have to do with satanic people? People who are going Satan's way. There should be a minimum of uh, I can't find the word I'm looking for. A minimum of concourse or a minimum of of uh, closeness or rubbing shoulders with or whatever with the world. Because we're the temple of God and they're of the temple of Satan. Now they may not look satanic as they walk down the uh, street or through Walmart. They may not look satanic. But that is what their view is. That is what their understanding is, is the things of Satan. So we need to be very, very careful. You don't want to be around that influence. And sometimes it doesn't take too much of a bad attitude, does it, to put you in a foul mood? You run into somebody that's in a lousy attitude, and if you listen to them or talk to them a little bit, first thing you know, you start getting a bad attitude. That's what negativity does. But we're not supposed to be negative. We're supposed to be positive. We're supposed to be looking for the good, the right, the pure. Uh, Philippians 4.8, a lot of things there he says we should have as our attitudes, and yet we have negative, worried attitudes all too often about this isn't going to work out, or that isn't going to work out, or he don't like me, or she don't like me, or whatever. And we dwell on the negative instead of on the positive, and that's against every scripture in the Bible. 
That is a satanic attitude, a satanic approach. And we have to change it and become children of the light so that we spread joy and happiness and well-being and goodness and good news and good reports instead of always sharing the negative and the bad reports. People don't just fall all over themselves to come give you a good report about something that's good that's happened. But boy, let something bad happen, and they're on the text or the phone or whatever, or running over to tell you something bad that has happened. Because we, as human beings, tend toward that negative side. But it is contrary to God. It just is. Faith is a positive thing. Hope is a positive thing. Do you believe these scriptures? Or do you say, well, this is going to happen here. You know, I'm not worried about the court case we have. It frustrates me. Uh, I, I don't like dealing with it. I like to forget about it as much as I can. And I don't like to pay the lawyer bills. When they come in, they frustrate me. But I'm not a bit worried about this lawsuit. Because I know God has told me that he is going to see it through and take care of it. And that the rebels will be gone. So, what's to worry? I don't lay around and worry and lose sleep over how are we going to win this thing. What, are we, what can we do? Nah. God says he's going to do it. And he says if we need to do it, he's going to give us hooves of brass and horns of iron and the sharp threshing teeth of a mouth. I simply read, read that. I believe it. Do you believe it? Or do you set it aside and worry about what's going to happen and lose sleep over it? That's a lack of faith. That's a lack of belief in God. And I just pick that out as one that comes to mind because it's one we're facing here. I'm not worried about it. Frustration sometimes uh, is one thing, but worrying and feeling negative is a totally different thing. So we don't worry about those who are not following God. Uh, God will take care of them, and we don't have fellowship or concourse or yoking together with them. Verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be you separate, says the Eternal, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So not only he says, don't be unequally yoked with them, come out from them, be away from them, be separate, don't touch the unclean thing, stay away from it, and I will receive you. So that's a pretty strong statement there. It reminds me of Revelation 18.4. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her plagues and her sins. We're here trying to become worthy to escape all these horrors that are coming by being close to God. And yet if we try to be close to the world, we're just shining up to Satan. What, what conversation do we have with the world? Come out from among them. Stay away from them. God gave us a place out here 
where we're basically away from the world, except those who've rebelled and are in their attitudes and approach gone back into the world because they're lying and cheating and deceiving and defrauding and so on, which is ungodly and that makes you a son of Satan. So they're around us, but I don't have very, but very, very little concourse with them. In fact, I basically just ignore them as if they aren't there. <coughs> I pray for them, but I ignore them. Don't want anything to do with that. I don't want my attitude to suffer. Same with the world around us. Why did God bring us out here to get us away and out of the midst of Babylon? And then we decide that we want to have a friendship with the world. No, come out from among them. Be separate. And don't touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. <coughs> and will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. <coughs> Contrast the Pharisees who felt they were worshiping the God of Israel. And they were doing all these good deeds and wanted to be known for it. And Christ told them, you think you're worshiping God, but you're the sons of Satan. You're following Satan's ways. And he didn't have a whole lot to do with them. <coughs> he called them a lot of names. And then he told them he was divorcing them. I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept those teachers that I have sent. And they haven't done it to this day, so Christ has no relationship with the Jews. There's just none. They think they're worshiping God, but they're worshiping Satan. And they haven't gotten any better since they were there in Christ's day. They're still the same thing they were then, only worse maybe. So we want him to be a father to us. We can look to him and say, Abba, Father, I love you, Father. And he'll say, I love you, my son. And you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He emphasizes who God is. He is the Almighty. So he says, just forget about the world. Get away from them. And be separate. Fellowship with me, fellowship with my son, and fellowship with each other. That's John's instruction. And he had more of the love of God than any human being that probably existed. So he knows what he's talking about, and so does Paul. So the world is not where we go. And it's not just the people in the world. But what about all the things that they put out there for you to watch and to see and to experience on uh, computers and televisions and so on? It's the way of Satan. What about the games that they have on, that uh, people play all the time on computers? Nearly all of it is about violence and killing, destruction. Nearly all of them. There's a few maybe that aren't, but that's mostly what they are. What did God destroy the world for back in Noah's day? Violence on the earth. What do we got today? Violence on the earth, and it's being promoted, and we buy it. We play the games that promote it. And then wonder why people get violent. After watching violence and playing violent games hour after hour, week after week, year after year on computers. 
Now that is not coming out from and being separate from the world. That is indulging in Satan's way. Those games should all be destroyed. There will not be one of them in the kingdom of God. They'll all be gone. Can't find one. Won't be there. And yet people get so engrossed on it. No. And what kind of entertainment do they give us? Basically, it's about murder and theft and adultery and uh, gay sex. Uh, I mean, it's, that's what the sitcoms on the TV are full of. I doubt if there's one there that really we should watch. I don't know what it would be. <clears throat> Because they all promote sin in some form or fashion, and it is the world. So if I'm going to come out and be separate from the world, I'm going to drag it with me with my computer and my TV set? I think not. My fellowship is with the Father and the Son and us together. It isn't with the world. Be separate from them. But their sins and plagues don't come on you. So when Paul says here, be you separate, don't touch the unclean thing, what does that mean to you? Does it mean what I'm saying, or does it mean something else, and you can go on doing whatever you want to do? Isaiah 52 tells us there toward the end of the chapter, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. If we're going to bear his vessels and build his temple, we need to be clean from the world. Not involved in it. And the things of the world. I mean, those people out there are just people, right? They're, they're human beings. It's what they do and think that is wrong. And what they do and think is what they give you to do and think on your television and your computer and your iPhone. The way of Satan. And it's... There's very, very little you can watch on a TV or a computer that is godly. Very, very little. Are we coming out and separating just from those arms and legs and bodies? Or are we separating from the sin that they perpetuate? That's the way you have to think of it. Separate from the sin. Those people out there don't keep you out of the kingdom of God. Sin does. It's what they're doing and thinking, and if you take on their thoughts and the things they're doing, then you haven't separated yourself from the world. You're still in it. Still doing what it does, thinking what it thinks. Being entertained by the sin that they perpetrate and perpetuate. How can you play a computer game that is full of violence? You can't. Because that's Satan's way. Violence is his way. Death and destruction is his way. And you're going along with it if you're playing his games. What communion does Christ have with Satan? This is a pretty important passage right here in uh, verse 14 down through verse 18 in Second Corinthians 6. And we should really pay heed to it. 
lest we be drawn into the world and the world's ways. I didn't come out here to be like the world. I came out here to be different and separate from the world. And it's very, very difficult to do that because the world is still all around us. Whether it be in St. George or Hurricane or whether it be over the airwaves, it's still all around us. And we have to be separate from it. So give it some thought and think on things that are good and pure and wholesome and life-giving instead of that which is destructive and violent. It's that simple. Positive instead of negative. And then we'll begin to think like God.